the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. The problem was my earphones were unplugged, but it is a delight to have them plugged back in. But more of a delight to have Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman here. Neither rain nor sleet nor snow nor hail will stop uh, the delivery of their services. Hugh Hallman is the former mayor of Tempe, an attorney in town. Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Insight Analytics. We have them here every Tuesday, have been doing so since about April of 2020, I'm guessing. Certainly by May, because we were looking up some of our past writings together, and we had published some stuff in May, so at least at least a year and a half. The whole band got together yeah. a year and a half ago, yeah. but uh, I started first, and then Lewis joined us, because yeah. he was the guy, he, he was the man behind the curtain who was doing most of the data processing, so <laughs> he deserved to actually eventually make the appearance, and still outstrips his father in intellect and, and uh, appearance. As I recall it, and this wouldn't be the first time, but it's it's not often, as I recall Lewis called in as a listener kind of thing once. Oh, yeah, and that's I, right. And I said... <laughs> that's how this all you started. you weren't here. He I was not right. here. That is and, true. And, and, and I said, that's a smart kid. We've got to get him in with his daddy or something <laughs> like that. I think. I think. You I, discovered only afterward that uh, Lewis was my son. You did not attribute that level right, of intent to You're right. You're right. So I wouldn't father. have said we've got to get him in here with that's his daddy. Right. Anyway, you, you guys have been a blessing level. for me and to me and this show... For a year and a half, and uh, we shall not let the year end without me uh, making note of that. So thank you. Uh, I did a. Uh, I, I spent my f- the first hour talking about you know one of the things that I'm I've, I'm so curious about with COVID is how easily people are willing to believe sources that continually prove themselves to be wrong again, again, and again, and again, and sometimes even lying, and yet they believe those sources every time they say jump. Uh, too many people say how high, and I. You know, came up with a list of some 20 odd things the quote unquote experts have told us, uh, the science, the scientists we're supposed to follow have told us that have turned out to be wrong. Uh, five in this month, five big ones in this month alone. Anyway, we wake up uh, this morning to learn a few different things, but you take it wherever you gentlemen want to take it. We can go uh, young to old here, young to older. <laughs> start with Lewis, if that makes sense, or sure, we can go. I am speechless. As uh, as uh, as Willy Wonka said, we can reverse it. Well, I, I was struck by so what you just much said, Seth. Time, um, so little to do. I, I, I was struck by what you just said, though, about yep. um, people so who are so eager to listen to sources that nevertheless are are continuously wrong about the nature of reality and the pandemic, and and you know, uh, I, I've certainly been interested as to why that seems to be. And, you know, my, my assessment at this point really is, is that the, the pandemic after about three or four months, frankly, stopped being this novel, scary thing that we have to defend against together and boiled over into mundanity and a route for government and others to suppress civil liberties and pick winners and losers. And so ultimately what has happened since then, I think is that 
well, we're listening to our, you know, political program of choice, whether you are on the right or on the left. And it's very, very easy when you do that to get into the mindset of supporting the team and attributing any errors that they make to inattentiveness or, or, you know, not malice, obviously, because these are the good people who agree with you most of the time. And so, you know, it's very, very easy for for us to, I think, drown out those instances where where our allies are incorrect and to demand ever more proof from those that oppose us. You know, the, the standards of evidence we have for those across the aisle are wildly higher than those that, uh, among our allies. Bill, um, unless you want to add to that, I wanted to play something that I, I missed when it first aired. It was September of this year. It's emblematic of a few things. Uh, Bill, will you will you play this? This is uh, Sanjay Gupta of CNN. He's the house doctor at CNN. Is that the right word? He's not really the house physician. He's their medical expert. He is their chief medical correspondent at CNN. Who stays on narrative. Yes. <laughs> this is him asking Anthony Fauci a question in September. I totally missed this until recently, and I think a, a volume is spoken here. Go ahead, Bill. And just, and just real quickly um – There was a study that came out of Israel about natural immunity, and basically the headline was that natural immunity provides a lot of protection, even better than the vaccines alone. Um, What are are people to make of that? So so as we talk about vaccine mandates, I get calls all the time. People say, I've already had COVID, I'm protected, and now the study says maybe even more protected than the vaccine alone. Should they also get the vaccine? How do you make the case to them? You know, that's a really good point, Sanjay. I don't have a really firm answer for you on that. That's something that we're going to have to discuss regarding the durability of the response. The one thing the paper from Israel didn't tell you is whether or not as high as the protection is with natural infection, what's the durability compared to the durability Mm. of a vaccine? Two things immediately happen right there. You have the world's expert, or so we're told, on epidemiology saying that's a really good one. I don't have a firm answer on that, as if it's the first time 19 months into the pandemic, natural immunity is a phrase he ever heard. Odd. Odd that he doesn't know anything or isn't willing to speak on natural immunity. The second thing is when he says – well, he he articulated that he was familiar with the Israeli study because he said – The one thing the Israeli paper doesn't do is talk to you about the durability. That's the one thing, actually, the paper did do. It's the first sentence of the conclusion. This study demonstrated that natural immunity confers longer-lasting and stronger protection against infection, symptomatic disease, and hospitalization caused by SARS-CoV-2 compared to the BNT-16-2B2 two-dose vaccine-induced immunity. He's either lying or unfamiliar. We keep interviewing this guy. We keep listening to this guy. He was either being a fool or a liar. I don't know what to make of it. He's not lying or fooling anyone, Seth. Come now. He is merely uh, giving the American people the truth that they are ready to hear in the current moment. We will get a new truth next week or the week after. When we're ready for it. When we're ready. That was his phrase about hiding the number, uh, the percentage needed for herd immunity. That's what he said. I didn't think America was ready for the real number, so I fudged it. That's what he said. This is why why I begin calling a lot of our public health experts the Brahmin class. This refers to the the Indian caste system where the Brahmins are the highest caste and – the priestly uh, uh, class that then are able to dictate to all lowercase uh, 
So since how the world works, more highly educated, those of us most who have uh, more fundamental vocabularies among the grunts call it a caste system. But that's the point uh, is that he is correct. We now have a very small minority of people who like being in power, like dictating to the rest of us. And I think you covered this admirably in your last hour. It gives rise to this whole notion that there is a an elite that get to dictate what rights the rest of us get to exercise. And as conservatives, we have been blasted for using the concept of states' rights, and I want to come back to that for a moment. And you properly advise, maybe we ought to put more weight on our individual rights, the rights that come out of the first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights in our Constitution. Interestingly, we just had the president announce that uh, there is really no federal solution here. This is a man who two years ago was decrying the fact that Donald Trump was not exercising federal authority and it was the federal solution that we needed to have. And we in this room argued about the fact that that was the wrong answer, that the that the Petri dishes of our states give us the opportunity to experiment and come up with different solutions that ultimately might lead us to the best solutions. It's very interesting that there's no federal solution only after $12 trillion of right. money was printed yeah. investigating federal solutions right. to this problem. Right. Right. And mandates that should go along with and it. And an election based on whether one candidate was going to exercise federal power to do it or not. Correct. It right. was on May 1st, 2020, that we officially... Uh, sent out our editorial piece that the Phoenix Business Journal ran for us, talking about the fact that uh, that James Madison made it very clear that that the different states would be the place in which we would experiment to find great solutions. And we had an election that mandated federal solutions, and Joe Biden was the federal candidate who was going to impose upon us, and now has found out not only does his power not extend that far, but that even at his best exercise of power, Americans fundamentally, and this is what gives me some hope, have said enough. Most of them. I Yeah, I was having that discussion with someone back east today about whether Americans are kind of now throwing up their hands. If, if, if there is a corner that has been turned here, despite the best efforts of the corporate media. Thank you for that phrase, Lewis. Well, you gave it to me. <laughs> you are welcome. Despite the best efforts of the corporate media and the fear mongers in the administration. Well, I, I would point to the fact that Joe Biden's approval rating, despite every ounce of of – Media. Uh, oh, God, there's a word Complicity. I can't say on the rare. Complicity is a great substitute. Lift. Sure. All of this complicity and cheerleading that Joe Biden has managed an approval rating within about five percentage points of Donald Trump's right. the entire time, which has been fascinating to see. He succeeded in getting below Kamala Harris. Now, Kamala Harris is blaming her low approval ratings on racism. Naturally. What is Joe Biden's excuse? Now that he's below her. Because he's a racist. Reverse race. <laughs> yeah, we'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh and Lewis Hallman. Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman are my guests, as they are every Tuesday. Who's driving right here? I Hugh. get to drive Go now because Lewis opened the show, and it'll be quick. Uh, we're going to do our quick COVID update on numbers. And we had fear-mongering in the lead-up to the Christmas holiday um, with the press, uh, NPR, the usual folks, beating the drum that we all needed to stay away from one another. The president's speech on December 2nd even made mention of the fact that, oh, it's okay if you gather if you're all vaccinated. But since his theme was all about getting vaccinated— 
that was the purpose, that if you're unvaccinated, you shouldn't get together, you shouldn't contaminate people. Uh, and now what we're really seeing is that the same sort of pattern occurred with this most recent spike. It was not nearly as dramatic as the January spike. So we've had three spikes in the history of this virus. We had the first spike in the summer of 2020. That's right. Uh, we had the next spike in January of 2020. We're talking about Arizona here, Correct. but it's well, probably, also true, it's probably true of a lot of the match, states. It's right. match, the, match the country. It's right. the same pattern. Okay. And then we have a third spike that occurred uh, in November of 2021. So those are the major spikes. So it looks like it's occurring about twice a year uh, that we have this kind of thing, a summer uh, version and a, and a winter version, uh, unlike the flu, where we have a flu season that's once a year and it's in the fall, summer, uh, fall winter. Well, let me give you the numbers to give you some sense of those spikes. So in the summer of 20 spike, we had the spiking date for cases was on June 20. This is Arizona, June 29th, 2020 of 5,500 cases. And then, as Lewis would say, it's a lagging indicator of deaths. Mm -hmm. You have deaths lagging cases. you got to have the disease before you can die from it. And it takes a couple of weeks to die. Uh, in that instance, the spike of the deaths was on July 17th of 2020 with 104 deaths. Mm -hmm. Then we had a bigger spike in the uh, winter of 2021, the January spike. And the cases spiked on January 4th of 2021 with 12,436 cases. So there are probably a lot of uh, late New Year's numbers included in that figure. We're, we're going we're, we're to talk about the sort of data mess. Then on January 18th, 2021, we had the spike in deaths, 176 deaths. The third spike then was this winter of uh, or late fall, November 29th, 2021. We had 5,600 cases. And then the deaths spiked on December 7th, 2021 of 74. Now, the data piece, as Lewis has probably been done the best work across the globe on looking at the data. He's the one who discovered the state of Arizona burying and hiding the fact that they'd made huge data mistakes in the summer of 2020, for example. In this instance, he has had to hand sort and go back every single day because the state will not segregate their data correctly to look at how the death numbers change on a daily basis. Because we find, as you do today, there are hundreds of uh, new deaths, but they're not all today or yesterday or the day before. They're over the entire length of the pandemic. So somebody who died in March of 2020 might be discovered as having had COVID, and we'll add that to the data. So to, to kind of explain this a little more, the effective idea is that when the state is releasing a number of deaths today, say they found 100 deaths today, it will say in their daily report, it'll say 100 deaths. But if you look at the bar graph on today's date, it's not going to say 100. Instead, you will see 100 deaths scattered back in across the pandemic time series, typically going as far back as three months. Mm -hmm. That's right. But often much farther. And so the challenge we have in sorting the data is we can't get the data given to us in a way that you can do that easily. It's hidden. In the same way that the CDC is still collecting data on breakthrough right. cases – not just hospitalizations and deaths, but just the number of breakthrough cases. All of that data would allow us to determine if you are vaccinated, what's the probability that you still could get COVID-19 and what's the probability of bad outcomes or better outcomes. It would be helpful to us to know that because it looks to me to be the case, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, that vaccines actually do reduce uh, the symptoms 
and do reduce mortality at this stage. Up until Omicron, I would say. Up until Omicron. But actually, even that data suggests in the same direction that Omicron may be less uh, uh, lethal and have less outcomes. It is confounded, however, because there is some impact, it looks like, from the most recent studies, if you've been vaccinated three times. That is, if you've had three shots. If you've had two shots, the impact is much less on reducing. Durability is very low. Durability is an important question. So now Mr. Fauci doesn't know the word durability, uh, except when he's criticizing um, the uh, Israeli study about natural immunity. So what we do know, people like me, once we got COVID-19, got tested for antibodies and to see how long they were lasting. And there's lots of that data out there. So he's full of baloney that he doesn't have data that would tell you that the natural immunity is consistent in the studies, as Israel found in its study, that natural immunity seems to last longer than the immunity one gets from the vaccine. That's all important stuff. But what we get is the data they want to give us, not the data we need to make sensible policy decisions as individuals making decisions on our daily lives. Well, I can put it in sharp relief, uh, that very example in sharp relief. Uh, how many times have you heard Fauci, Biden, Walensky say uh, even um, even those who have COVID can get reinfected, can have COVID a second time? You've heard them say that. We actually know of these cases. You never hear them say that about those who are vaccinated. But it's eminently true. Well, his entire it's eminently true. That's why they took down the data on breakthrough hospitalizations and deaths. Some states do it. Ours doesn't. Vermont does. Minnesota does. We're talking about 30 to 50 percent of the hospitalizations are breakthrough. So here's what I would like our legislators of the state of Arizona to do when they open up in January. Set aside a little bit of money. It's a few million dollars probably. And let's do a real study in the state of Arizona. Let's gather data on people who've never been vaccinated and see if they have antibodies. Let's gather data on people who've been vaccinated and see if they've been infected. Let's examine the uh, durability of the vaccinations, the boosters, and the natural immunity. All of that data is available to us here in the state of Arizona, and we could then get a much better understanding of what's really going on, and we could then make good policy decisions for ourselves. Can we all gather together without fear that grandma's going to die? The reason we make fun of that is we're now gathering the asymptomatic case studies, and there was a recent study done that gathered 350 studies examining the asymptomatic likelihoods. That is to say, people who have gotten the disease but didn't know it. They didn't have any symptoms from it. And in fact, the study about uh, the studies says that on average, all 350 studies they pulled together looking at their papers, that the average percentage uh, looking at it as a weighted test was that 35% of all cases are asymptomatic. That's that a number again. Thirty-five percent of all cases. Much bigger. But there is more. That in fact, the range could be from thirty to forty percent from just those studies, and in children, it's forty-six to sixty-two percent of all cases. I'm sorry, thirty-two to sixty-two percent of all cases are asymptomatic. So kids get the disease and don't know they have it. That does mean warning, warning that they can spread it without knowing it. But what it also tells us is. As the data tells us already, they're very less likely to have any bad health outcomes. And so why are we vaccinating kids to save whom? Why are we closing schools to save whom? Let's come back on that when we come back. I like that. The study on studies. 
I knew we had a problem in this government, the bureaucracy, when I read once about a legislature having a committee on committees. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lewis Hallman, you wanted to add to uh, – Hugh Hallman had one more point that then Lewis was Yes, Lewis is going to tear these studies apart Sorry. for the right reason that we should do our studies better. But what these studies point out is that we still have very little good data on asymptomatic case rates. Mm-hmm. If we know that the, the – one study I was pulling out, Lewis and I are making a little bit of fun of, uh, from January of 2021 – done by the University of Chicago folks, that uh, in their study of the New York data, only 13 to 18 percent of all cases in New York City were symptomatic, meaning all the rest were asymptomatic. Well, if 80 percent of your cases are asymptomatic, then you have to divide your mortality rates by five. And so instead of them being 2%, it's 0.4, which is twice flu. We've talked about the fact that the, uh, the British changed to a 28-day study, a 28-day standard for determining whether you died with or of COVID. The U.S. still uses a 60-day study. That changed the math by 40 to 60%. So you cut it in half again. Well, now we're talking about the flu rates. That's the, the angering part here is the data could be available to all of us so we could understand the real threat of this disease. And instead, the politics that Lewis described at the opening of the show pushes that those people who want to use government power and authority to dictate your lives are using this disease and maintaining their position of power by continuing to beat the fear drum out of this. Now, Lewis, tear these studies apart. All right. So we were looking at a meta-analysis of 350 studies. Now, those studies were compiled between January 1st, 2020 and April 2nd, 2021. What's very interesting about this this meta-analysis is it treats the studies as identical and only comes up with one set of summary variables about the asymptomatic rate. And this, to me, is patently ridiculous because all of those studies had different data ranges, different time series that they looked at. And so they would have formed a perfect natural experiment that you could then use pre-vaccine times and post-vaccine times. And you could also index all of that data post-vaccine with how many vaccines had been delivered so that we might know how the relative rate of vaccination affects asymptomatic cases. Because currently, studies from 2020 without any vaccines in the population do not describe the world that we live in and are now fundamentally not that helpful. They give us a good indication of what happened previously and they let us criticize past policy failings, but they don't give us enough information to, to succinctly tell what we need and where we're going. And it, it, I am just struck by the fact that any idiot junior scientist could have looked at these studies and figured out that that was a reasonable question to ask. Anybody worth their salt. And so I'm forced to ponder... Why are we spitting out all of these results that do nothing for us and are effectively a waste of what appears to be very mediocre academic talent because they've just wasted the opportunity here? So here's one of the pieces to take from what Lewis's rant just uh, pointed out. We do understand from more recent data that, and certainly the CDC says this, Joe Biden says this, if you get vaccinated... The disease you might get if you get COVID-19 will be more mild. It also would then 
tend to press in the direction that there would be more asymptomatic cases. That's why they ultimately had to determine that if you've been vaccinated, you still have to wear a mask because you're likely to have an asymptomatic case if you get the disease and not know it and spread the disease. Guess what, folks? It is highly likely that we're coming to a point where the disease is spreading around among us. Uh, and again, Americans kind of have shaken their hands and said, maybe enough. Uh, but the point about the Lewis's uh, examination of these studies is that the data we're getting is just awful. Well, let me add one tail to that kite, if I can, and see if you agree. Because one of the struggles I have had... Or to in, that donkey. Huh? The tail to that kite or yeah, the donkey. a kite. A kite yeah. is a better thing in this case. Um when you look at the states that do break out, break through deaths, break through hospitalizations, they play a little bit of a trick you got to be careful on because they find uh, – you will find that they'll say such things as it's a very, 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 very low percent compared to the unvaccinated. But guess what? They're counting from January 2020. Right. They're counting a whole year without vaccinations. Right. They're counting a year where there were already 400,000 people who died from or with COVID. You see that this? is not good science. That is not good math. That's not true and but accurate. It, but it is a good Brahmin chant. <laughs> what I would like to propose when we come back yes, is to pivot that we're talking about individual rights being uh, oh, yeah. lost uh, and the fact that we can't use states' rights when states are actually, as Joe Biden would now admit, the source of solutions for this kind of a problem. But as we lose individual rights, we also see around the globe that we're now engaged in an international fight uh, and that may flare up. And I think Lewis has done some really good uh, research about the Russia-Ukraine yeah, problem. Good. So when we come back, we could maybe pivot to talking about uh, the threat we now have from Vladimir Putin and that we have a failure in the White House. Fabulous. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. You wanted to make a point, Lewis. I think I wanted to make a series of points, if Go I may. Go for it, brother. All right. What about Ukraine and Russia. Ukraine and Russia. So as we have all been seeing recently, Russia massed approximately 170,000 troops on the Ukrainian border. And this has caused quite the international kerfuffle recently as Russia makes very strange demands to keep Ukraine out of NATO and also influence the security policies of the Baltic states, Poland, uh, Ukraine, and uh, some of the Balkan regions as well. It's been very, very tense and very unusual. But I'd like to go over three points as to why I think things are very different there than they seem. The first piece of this is that in 2010, Ukraine was a very different place. It's only been, it had only been in existence for about 20 years at that point. And it didn't really have any, any formal sense of national identity. The Euromaidan protests and the Russian annexation of Crimea and the subsequent fighting in the Donbas region of Ukraine have changed that. There is now a growing and spreading sense of Ukrainian nationalism where none existed. This is important because it means that the will to resist of the Ukrainian population has been growing and growing and growing over the past five years or so. So that's piece one. Any invasion that Russia tries is now going to hit right into the teeth of a very determined resistance. Item number two. Since November 2021, NATO has been supplying the Ukrainian military with Javelin missiles and launchers. Now, these are about 50-pound shoulder-mounted missile systems that are anti-tank guided missiles. 
And what's more, they are incredibly easy to use. If you can play Candy Crush successfully, you can use a Javelin missile launcher. Now, this is important because Ukraine and Russia both sit on the northern European plain. Currently, Russia's border to the uh, that would be the west is about 2,000 miles long of flatland of nothing. This is why Russia has a fifth of the world's tank inventory because it needs all of that armor to be able to punch out and protect itself. Ukraine, of course, is flat. So having supplied the Ukrainian military with Javelin missile launchers, anti-tank weapon systems... That NATO has. That NATO has will, if not destroy the Russian advance, severely hinder it. And so what this has done is it has taken going from a one-month occupation of the capital to making it basically be about a three-month affair and then about a year-long affair to gain control of the entire country. It'd be significantly more difficult now. And so you'll notice that 2021 in November, when we started giving them those Javelin missiles, is precisely the time that Russia starts making angry Lad noises. Lost his mind. Exactly. About all of the Ukrainian security policy and that we better stay out of NATO and all of the rest of it. So why is all of this important? This comes down to point number three, and this is the big one. It's demography. The Russian ethnicity is dying as a people, and it has been since the 1970s after Khrushchev and all of the rest of the Soviet despots built up just miserable apartments to shove their populace in. You don't have children if you're living in a 300-square-foot apartment. It just doesn't happen. And so because of that, the Russian— With your parents. Right. The, the, the Russian demography is terminal. So to explain a bit what I mean about that— the Russians have, since about four or five years ago, been inflating artificially their number of children less than 10 to make it seem like they've got more people mm -hmm. than they have. Mm -hmm. They're overstating this by between 25 and 33 wow. percent. We can see how the data has changed just by looking at reports released before they started fudging the numbers. But the more interesting piece is if you look at the difference between 30 and 34-year-olds in Russia and 20 and 24-year-olds, there are half and I say that again, there are half as many 20 to 24-year-olds in Russia as there are 30 to 34-year-olds. That means that the Russian army has halved in manpower. That also manpower means, in 10 years has dropped by half. Yes, that's exactly right. That then means that any soldier lost conquering Ukraine is irreplaceable. So Putin has now been forced into a position where Earlier this year, he had a strategic opportunity to capture Ukraine, but that moment is now past. He now has to then storm and occupy a country that has been getting progressively more and more hostile to his interests. And that occupation will take the vast majority of his manpower. So even if he succeeds and kicks down the door in Ukraine, which is an area that the U.S. has very little strategic concern about ourselves, what does he win? A quagmire. And the strategic inability to push the Baltic states, Poland, and the rest of what he desires. Because Putin's Russia cannot survive with just Ukraine. He needs to close the northern European plain to about the Carpathian Gap. And instead of his 2,000-mile border, he's looking for about a 600-mile border that he can actually garrison with his dwindling army. And concurrently, his demographics internally have changed so that minority groups are growing. That's exactly right. In contrast to Russian Tartars, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, all of the minor Russian ethnicities have pre-industrial demographies. They are still growing at exponential rates. The Russians, however, are dying. And so Russia, the Russia that we see is one whose internal security divisions are going to multiply 
over the coming decades radically. And so now I have a different proposition. What does a Russia look like after it has been split up into different ethnic warring states and all of its 6,800 strong nuclear arsenal has been scattered to the winds? I submit to you that a broken Russia that has shattered might be a significantly more alarming threat to our global stability than is Putin's dying, defeated beast. My graver concern between today and that potential breakup is that we also— Corner beast is desperate. Is that that that's exactly right, that that beast becomes desperate and Vladimir Putin, as his Russians are dying off, then gets more desperate to keep everyone together on uh, the side of Mother Russia and starts picking even bigger fights— Beyond Ukraine. So we're Joseph Stalin all over, all over again. Potentially. Yeah, potentially. That's what we need to keep our eyes on today, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Um, we will come back. You wanted to do something on individual rights. We may or may not get to it today. You may we're going to do it when we come back. back. Perfect. I'm Seth Liebson. They're the Hallmans. Don't go away. We have a very pregnant final thought for you. All right, Mr. Mayor, take us away. Well, Lewis and I have been uh, diligently working to think about how to honor Americans uh, for continuing to fight the good fight. They have fought in an environment in which it is verboten. Shall I use German? No. It's forbidden to uh, to rage against the machine, that you have to fall in line with the Joe Biden corporate media um, uh, gig that everything has to be done the way they see fit, the the NPR news folks. And yet I am seeing even the, the NPR demographic group, the higher-end folks who are gathering at one of our, uh, many of our important restaurants in town, no longer wearing masks, no longer uh, behaving in the virtue signaling activities that have long uh, been required, uh, well, at least since February of 2020. And so as people have demonstrated that they've just had enough of this, and as they hear the alarm bells ringing repeatedly, uh, I am brought to think about the fact that there have been times in this country when things have been very, very dire. And we have seen people who rose up to lead us and have done so notwithstanding that their reputations were significantly sullied. One of those people that I know you admired uh, Meyer is Ulysses S. Grant. He served as president of the United States uh, from 1869 to, let's see, eight years later. I can't now think of it. 77. 77, 78. Uh, and he is somebody you admired. His, his reputation was badly damaged to the point that he nearly died in complete poverty. He actually was encouraged to write his autobiography by Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain, who stood up and published it. Now Grant is being understood as being somebody who stood for, early on, the civil rights of African Americans. And so on behalf of the population of the state of Arizona, for your great work leading us out of a pandemic craziness, Lewis and I wanted to present oh to you the personal God. memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. Oh that is a first God. edition. Oh they were published God. after he died by Mark Twain. By Mark Twain. So if anybody ever tells you they have a signed edition, they're lying, of course, because Ulysses S. Grant was already passed by the time cry. his uh, work was published. I'm going to cry. Bless you. And class dismissed.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.